you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. As Isaiah chapter 40, as you turn there, let me say that we do begin a new sermon series today that we have entitled, A Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. And it's been my prayer that this would bring you great comfort and equip us as we walk during very uncertain times. Before I read some verses out of Isaiah chapter 40, I do want to put those verses into some context since 39 chapters have gone on before this one. And in chapters 1 through 39 of the book of Isaiah, we see God's anger and judgment. You see, God's people have been living life, have they've not been living life as God designed it to be lived. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God is calling his people to repent, but they will not. They continue in their sin and their rebellion against him. And so God says that he's going to allow Babylon to come in and conquer Israel and conquer his people. And they will be carried off into exile as prisoners of war where they will stay for 60 or 70 years. And as they face that prospect, God knows that when his people face these uncertain times, they will conclude that he does not care about them at all. So in Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord tells Isaiah to give comfort to his people and to assure them that if they hope in him, he will help them to persevere the uncertain times they will face. I want you to notice something in particular about this announcement of comfort. It comes even in the midst of God's announcement of his anger and his judgment that we've read about for 39 chapters. Even in the midst of the rebellion of his people, God comforts his people and announces that he will help them to persevere in uncertain times. That he will free them from captivity and exile even though they have not even repented yet. They are bad and they are still bad and would admit that they're bad, yet God is so good and so gracious to his people. I don't know exactly what you face today. I do know that as a people, we face uncertain times. We face a lot of uncertainty in the world around us. But I also want you to know that there is a certain hope for uncertain times. God comforts us and calls us to hope in him. I wonder, where do you find your hope in uncertain times like these? My prayer has been that God would speak to you through Isaiah chapter 40 and that you would receive the comfort of the Lord today and that you would find that certain hope that is found only in him. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word, and then I'll pray for us, and we will dig in together. Hear now God's word from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. 
and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now verses 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And then verse 27 to the end of the chapter. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort that you give to your people. And Father, I pray now that you would help us to find that hope in uncertain times that can only be found in you. Please give us that certain hope. I pray that you'd be willing to do that even through the preaching of your word, even right now at this moment that you would give it, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I have good news for you this morning. Take comfort. The king is coming. You see, anyone who heard Isaiah chapter 40 read would conclude that a king was on the way. You see it there in verse 3 where he says, A voice of one calling, because there would be a herald that would go before the king. And he's calling out, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. You see, at these times when a king came to your city, he didn't just use the regular old roads that everybody else used. They built New roads for the king to come, roads fit for a king, roads that had bridges over valleys and, and widened mountain passes so that the king's way would be smooth and level as he comes to your city. We have inscriptions on roads, even to this day, that we can still see that attribute the building of the roads to the king coming to a certain place. And kings did this because it was an important thing thing to do to send some powerful messages to these folks who were ruled by the king. One of these powerful messages that would be sent by the building of these roads is the power of the king. It shows that the king has great authority. You see, the, the message is we get rid of all resistance to the coming of the king. We do that physically with the road that we build. But the message is that we also get rid of everything else that would oppose the authority of the king. That we get rid of all resistance to his authority. Even psychologically in the hearts and minds of the people. They're prepared 
for the king to come by recognizing his power and authority and get rid of anything that has resistance to him and the way that he would rule and have things run. Secondly, the building of these roads also showed the goodness of the king. Because if the king comes to our city, then we get a new road. We get new bridges. We get wider mountain passes, and so it's a good thing for the king to come because it makes the city a better place to live. You see, the coming of the king made things better because, and the message was, because he's a good king. And that principle still applies today. When authority is used rightly, there is a flourishing, there is a thriving There is a healing takes place for those who are under authority that is used rightly. Think about it. That's true in many areas of life. I think of athletics. If there is a good coach, then that coach brings out the best in the players. And he helps them learn to work together and to sacrifice so that under that coach, under his authority used rightly, there is a flourishing of that team. It's true in business as well. If there is a manager who uses her authority rightly, and she manages in a way that is good for the people, there's a flourishing that takes place and a thriving and a a healing of what is broken. It happens with good government as well, right? When authority is exercised rightly when governments reward those who do good and punish those who do evil and they exercise their authority rightly there is a flourishing and a thriving of those who are under that government and so it is with the king when authority is rightly used there is a flourishing and a thriving and a healing of what is broken you see that here in the text don't you because it says that when the king comes This impassable wilderness will become passable. That this uninhabitable desert will become inhabitable. So there is a king coming, but this is not just any king. Did you hear who the king is in verse 3? What does it say there? A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. This is the Lord God who is coming. The true king of the universe, the one who made all things, is coming back. And he's not coming to just make the usual cosmetic changes, right? Before, you might get a new road. You might get a bridge over a valley. You might widen some mountain paths. But no, when the true king comes, he's not doing the usual cosmetic changes. He's making major renovations, Instead of building a bridge over a valley, the valley is going to be raised up. Instead of widening mountain passes, mountains and hills are going to be brought low. This king is making major changes. It's not business as usual. And notice it's not just one city who receives the king, but all mankind. Look there in verse 5. It says, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind will see it. Together. This is the king of the whole world. And if the whole world sees him coming, then where is he coming from? He's coming from outside the world into this world. 
He's coming from outside the world to transform the world because he will rightly use his authority in a way that leads to flourishing and thriving and healing of what is broken. He will subdue all that is opposed to him physically and psychologically so that life will be lived as he designed it to be lived, so that the people will live life in a way that he would have it be lived. I think if we're honest, we would have to admit, if you've watched the news any at all this week, we would have to admit that the world we live in is like an impassable wilderness. This world is like an uninhabitable desert. And we can see why from the text, if you've been following the principle that we've said is true, you can see why this is. It's because we are under poor, incompetent management. We're under authority, not used rightly. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Before you jump to the conclusion that I'm making a political statement or taking a shot at one politician in particular, I think if we think about that for a moment, you know that's not true. Many parties have been in power, and many governors have been in power, and many people have had political power, and it's still broken. It's not just any one party or any one person. It is all of us that are broken. We're all part of the poor, incompetent management. But when the true, ultimate, worldwide king comes, there will be true, ultimate, worldwide healing of this world. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear me say that. Perhaps you think, well, that's just, it sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds too good to be true that we all live happily ever after. Maybe you think that's just a a legend. You think it's just a myth. Somebody sent me a, a video this week talking about how Christianity just mimics all the other legends and myths that are out there. And it's really not true at all because it's just another legend or myth. Perhaps that is what you think when you hear this story. But let me offer a couple of other thoughts. First, perhaps Christianity is just mimicking all other cultures and their myths and their legends. But consider, perhaps the story of the Bible is so true to the way things are that when people who are made in God's image, although they don't profess faith in God, although they don't study his word, but because they are made in his image, when they begin to dream and write stories of the way that they wish things were, they cannot help but mimic the one true story because it is written in our hearts. It is the longing that we have. It's what we sang earlier, you give the healing and grace our hearts always hunger for. They know that things are broken and messed up and they long for the true king. A second thought, I believe your head and your heart know this is true. You may have heard me tell this story before because it made such an impression on me, but a couple of years ago at Thanksgiving, we were home for the holidays and a family member was showing us pictures of a cruise they had taken. Elizabeth, my oldest, and I were interacting with this person. They were showing pictures on their iPad and they were showing us pictures of this pod of orca whales. And they were explaining, they had taken these pictures from the ship, and they were saying, you know, orca whales hunt in packs, they hunt in pods. And I was like, really? I didn't didn't know that. And they said, yes. And the pictures showed and unfolded over time 
that this pack of orca whales found another type of whale swimming in the water, and they begin to attack it, swimming by taking big chunks out of the whale. Until over time, in this gruesome scene unfolded, the whale was dead. Birds began to land on this whale and eat parts of its flesh. It was awful. It was terrible. And as we see something like that, you may think to yourself, well, that's natural. That's what nature does. And I would have to agree with you that nature does seem to operate on the principle of the survival of the fittest. The strong eat the weak. But have you ever noticed that there's something about nature that seems unnatural? Have you ever noticed that? You see, if people act the way nature does, then most of us see it as wrong for the strong to oppress the weak. For most of us, we react with horror if richer, stronger nations and races begin to oppress poorer and weaker nations and races. And our hearts long for justice for the weak. Haven't we seen that on our televisions displayed this week? People who are made in the image of God crying out and having their hearts cry out for justice for the weak. But I would submit to you, you can't have it both ways. You cannot say that human beings are just highly evolved animals, that we are just part of nature ourselves, and at the same time say that the strong should not oppress the weak. I mean, if the strong eating the weak is just natural, then why would we judge that when it happens? Why would we recoil in horror? It would be natural for the strong to eat the weak, and the weak would not need to be protected at all. But if what our hearts and our heads tell us is true, that nature is unnatural, that the strong should not oppress the weak, then that means there is a justice outside of nature by which we judge how nature acts. Now that's interesting. Where did we get that idea? Where did that justice from outside of nature come from? What is this justice from outside of nature? We might refer to it as supernature or supernatural. And at that point, the Bible makes perfect sense of what your head and your heart tell you is true. That justice demands the protection of the weak. We know in our hearts that things are broken and messed up. We know in our heads that things are not the way they should be. So at that point, our only hope is that the true king who made all things will come back from outside of this world to make all things right in this world. And if that's not what we believe, then we are doomed to a world where the strong eat the weak. But even that conclusion creates a powerful dilemma for us. Do you recognize the dilemma? While it is true that if there's not a good and powerful king coming back to make all things right, then what hope is there for the world? However, 
if there is a good and powerful king coming back to make all things right, then what hope is there for us? We are part of what's wrong with the world. We are broken and messed up. Chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah has been almost all God's anger and judgment because God's own people don't meet the standards of the true king. So either there's no hope for the world or there's no hope for us. What is the answer? And Isaiah, God through the prophet Isaiah, gives us the answer to that question here in verses 1 and 2. Look at it with me. To a people who deserve God's wrath and judgment and condemnation, who have not even repented yet, to that group of people, God sends his prophet, his spokesman, to say these words. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. It's almost unbelievable. Comfort, comfort, repeating the word. We've seen in God's word that when things are repeated, it's for emphasis. It's the way God underlines and puts things in italics and puts it in bold. He says, comfort, comfort in who? My people. Despite their sin, God still identifies with his people. And they've not even repented yet. They're still running in the wrong direction. Do you see what's going on? Their unfaithfulness to their God does not put an end to his faithfulness to them. Oh, how good and gracious our God is. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. He says, speak tenderly. Literally, the word is there. Speak to their heart. God is aiming to win back the hearts of his disobedient and rebellious people. And look how he refers to them, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Where are they when this word comes to them to comfort them? They're in Babylon. They're not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has fallen. It's been destroyed. They're prisoners of war. They're slaves in Babylon. But God dignifies them and reminds them of their true identity. You are my people. You are my people of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You're people of God's peace, of God's shalom. That's who you are. Oh, church, we need to be reminded of our true identity. You do understand that we live in Babylon. This place is not our home This is not where we live. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, Philippians 3 says. Or in this context, the true king. And when he comes, he will make all things right. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And because of the certainty of that day, because the king is coming to do that, now we prepare the way for him. Now we make the rough places smooth. Now we work against injustice and oppression in this day. We can face death and mourning and crying and pain now because God will do away with it in the future. Think about it. If a day is coming that those things will be no more, then that means those things are reality for the people of God in this day. We should expect death and mourning and crying and pain in this world until the true king comes back. Listen, I'm talking to God's people here. 
God's talking to his people here. And what I would say is, have you gotten too comfortable here? If we're not experiencing death and mourning and crying or pain, then, then we're not reacting the way that we should. Because the true king has not yet returned. And this is a day that we fight injustice and oppression in a way that leads to death and mourning and crying and pain until the, the true king comes back. In fact, that's what it says here in the text, right? It refers to her hard service. He says, tell her that her hard service, and that's a hard word to translate. The ESV, if you has it, says warfare. The idea is struggle or conflict. And I understand that it says her hard service has been completed. Yes, I understand that because the true king is coming, it's as good as done, Right? But when it says her hard service is completed, remember the people of God are still going to be taken as captives to Babylon. Her hard service is completed, but you're still going to be prisoners of war for 60 or 70 years. So the reference to her hard service has been completed because when God speaks that he's going to come back and make it right, it's as good as done. But it still means that we have to face the struggle now. But hear what God says to his people who struggle. He says here in the text, in your struggle, I'm not abandoning you. I've not forgotten you. Your struggle will be completed one day. It's not permanent. It will come to an end. And a day is coming when I will make all things right so you can persevere in this day. We can face death and mourning and crying and pain because we know a day is coming when God will take it away. The prophet says, he says, God tells me to tell you that her sin has been paid for. So we don't have to fear the return of the true king. And then he makes this odd statement. Tell her that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. When I first read that, I wondered, did God punish them double what their sin deserved? No, not at all, because God is a God of justice. He wouldn't give somebody twice what they deserve. There's no scripture that indicates that. In fact, if you read carefully the text, he never says that he's talking about punishment. Look what he says there. He says that her sins have been forgiven, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In Hebrew idioms, when you talk this way, The reference is not to punishment. The reference is to receiving blessing after going through a struggle. And the idea of receiving double after the struggle refers to the fact that the blessings to come are so much greater than the struggle in the present. You can read that in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7. You can look at the whole story of Job where he goes through it. He definitely goes through a struggle, but then he's blessed twice as much. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 18 when he says, but our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And that means we don't have to fear the struggle now, nor the coming of the king now. Because the day is coming when he will make all things right. You see that in verse 10, don't you? Where it says, see the sovereign Lord, sovereignty, his royalty, his authority. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Arm is a Hebrew metaphor for power and strength. This king is strong and powerful. And what is his arm doing? What is he doing with his power and with his strength? Look at verse 11. What's his arm doing? 
He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, the most vulnerable. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Do you hear what this is saying? It's saying that there is a good and powerful king who uses his strength for the weak, for the most vulnerable among us. This king is a shepherd to his people, so we don't have to fear the struggle, nor do we have to fear his return. Isn't that what we all long for? As we process the senseless death of George Floyd in Minnesota, isn't that what we long for? Authority rightly exercised? A strong and powerful king who is a shepherd to his people and uses his power for the weak? Oh, church, take comfort, for he is coming so we can persevere in the struggle now. Verse 10 says he's coming and his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. And I read that and I think, oh my goodness, he's coming back and he's going to make everybody pay recompense, right? It's not what this says. There are other passages of the scripture that talk about people will get what is owed to them. I understand that, but, but that's not what, this is not a judgment passage, It says, see, his reward is with him, and his recompense, he's going to make all things right. He's going to set it back the way it was before his recompense accompanies him. So he's going to make all things right when he comes back. But what's his reward that is with him? I mean, he's the king of the world. (laughs) What can he possibly be rewarded with? If you look at the text, verse 12 says that the waters, the seas, the heavens, the mountains, the hills, they're all already his. Verse 15 says the nations are his. Verse 21 and 22 says the whole earth is his. Verse 26 says that the heavens, the stars, outer space, it's all his. What could possibly be his reward? Well, what does the text say? It says, see, in verse 10, his reward is with him. What does he have with him? Keep reading. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. His reward is his flock. His reward is you. His reward is me. His reward is his people that he has delivered from their captivity to sin and brokenness. In the New Testament, we find these words from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 describing John the baptizer as he is a voice of one calling out to prepare the way for the Lord. Specifically pointing out that that the Lord Jesus is the true king. He's the one who is strong but cares for the weak. And what did Jesus gain by coming to earth? It wasn't worship. He was worshiped and adored in heaven before he came. He didn't acquire more power. He was the Lord over all things with absolute omnipotence and authority before he came. What did he gain by coming? He gained you. He gained me. By living the life that we should have lived, meeting all the standards of the true king. And by dying the death we should have died to pay the penalty that our sin deserved. 
And, and we as his people receive double. First, our sin has been paid for. And second, we get credit for his perfect record that we've been singing about this morning. So now God sees us as his reward, as his treasured possession. How should we respond to that? Let me just conclude in the next four or five minutes by just talking about how we should respond. I, I'm just going to be honest. I don't know how your heart responds to that. But I'll just be honest and confess, here's how my heart responds. I usually respond something like this. If I'm God's reward, if I'm his treasured possession, then why am I having such a hard time? If he loves me so much, then why am I having to go through this struggle? Why aren't things easier for me? If God really loves me, why do I have to deal with these hard things? That's my heart. And God's and his word is so honest do you see that's the same thing these people said? Look at verse 27. It's exactly what they said. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause has been disregarded by my God. It's so refreshing that to me, to my heart, that the Bible meets me right where I am, that God speaks to me through his word right where I am, because I ask that question. If I'm your treasured position, your reward, why do I struggle? And God, in his graciousness, answers. Look at verse 28. God answers and he says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying God's not surprised by what's going on. God never suffers setbacks. God's never outsmarted. God never gets tired or weary or runs out of gas. And he helps his children that do get surprised by life. He helps his children that do suffer setbacks. He helps his children that are outsmarted. He helps his children who do get tired and weary. You see it in verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. This reference to youth is saying, look, human strength, even at its best, fails. So don't rely on your strength. Don't rely on being smart enough. Don't rely on being good enough. Our hope is not in our strength. That is not what we are to look to. Okay, that's what not to do. So what does he say to do? Look at verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. He calls us to hope in the Lord. But, but do you see this progression here? If I'm writing this, I would start with walking and not being faint and then run and grow weary, and I would end with sore like eagles because that's what I love in the Christian life. I want God, I want to hope in the Lord and, and soar on wings like eagles. And sometimes the Christian life is like that. But sometimes we hope in the Lord and we hit the ground running and we're just trying not to get weary. And sometimes when we hope in the Lord, we're just walking. We're just trying to put one foot in front of the other without just fainting and falling out. Sometimes that's where we are. And God's word is so honest about that. And it just says, look, all God's children are somewhere on that spectrum. 
So no matter where you are today, the way that we respond is we hope in the Lord. Well, how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, Isaiah's already described it. It means getting rid of all resistance to his authority. When I say it like this, it means that we're to say, not my will, but your will be done. And we say, okay, yeah, that's right, because Jesus said that. Well, what if I say it like this? Not my schedule, but your schedule be done. What if I say, not my plans, but your plans be done. Not my kingdom be built, but your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look to him for healing. Because authority rightly exercised brings healing. And we look to him to work all things out. Listen, let's not get cynical. Let's not believe the lie that I'm always going to be messed up this way, that my family is always going to be messed up like this, that the economy is always going to be messed up, that politics are always going to be messed up, that that must just be the way things are because that's what is natural. Well, I've got good news for you if you feel that way. And I call you from God's word to take comfort because a king is coming from outside this world, a king who is supernatural, and he will make all things right. And as we remember that truth and believe it with certainty, it sustains us as we work to prepare for his company his coming, by making all things right in this day. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Heavenly Father, our hearts are burdened. Some of us soar like eagles today. Some of us have hit the ground running, and some of us are just trying to put one foot in front of the other without fainting and falling out. Oh, Lord, help us to find our comfort in you. Help us to hope in you. Give us the strength to do that so that we might continue to be your people at this place, at this time. And I pray that you would help us to do that for your glory and for the good of your people and your creation. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.